Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am super fired up for this guest. This guest has battled against and teamed with Andre Agassi in his junior days. He's won nine USTA national titles and was a finalist 11 times. He's the current head coach for over 20 years for the Ohio State Buckeyes with tremendous success. Please welcome to the pod, Coach Ty Tucker. Coach, thank you for taking time and walking us through your journey. Hey, thanks for having me. I just want you to know, you know, I take I take this job serious, and I'm wearing the red long sleeve T-shirt and uh, the gray sweats, and we always know you're rocking the gray sweats. Why wouldn't you be wearing that? It seems like a pretty good outfit, and uh, it's too bad uh, I won't be wearing it tomorrow because we were supposed to play Illinois tomorrow, and uh, the gray sweatpants have been put away for the year. Ah, yeah, in Illinois, I, that you know, I'm from the Chicago area, and I'm a fan of obviously Coach Dancer and. Uh, that program, and you guys have had some great battles over the years. So talk a little bit about um, the sudden stoppage. I know, um, like you said, you'd be ready to roll. You'd be right in the mix of conference season right now. College tennis has stopped along with a lot of other things. What's the status with, with you and, and your team and how they keep them busy? Yeah, college tennis has stopped, and they've kind of uh, put the handcuffs on the coaches, and there's uh, very, very little that you can do. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's – Never thought I'd go through anything like this. At 24 years of coaching, and uh, you know, basically, you can ask you guys how they're doing. And uh, hey, did you hit any balls today? But uh, you better not ask them what the score was, or who did you play with, or get out there and hit some serves. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the NCAA is working themselves through what the rules are going to be, and. Uh, you know, right now, that's uh, it's very, very limited access. Obviously, you can have some Zoom calls and you can do some things and get guys on the on the phone and have some team meetings with everybody in a in a Zoom atmosphere. But as far as you know, trying to monitor any lifting or any practicing, uh, absolutely uh, none of that. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It really is the whole sports world and and everything that goes along with it. It's it's we've never been through this before. I want to get into your tennis background because you have such a cool um successful background in tennis and like i said in the intro nine usta national titles finalist 11 times um, you went down to Bolitari for a few years with the likes of andre agassi jim courier and that gang um, how did you get started in the sport and and you know who were some of your main coaches growing up and and their influences on you uh you know i obviously peaked too early but uh <laughs> I would say uh, I got, uh, you know, started at a young age. My dad was uh, CPA and uh, moved to, uh, you know, was with Ernst & Ernst early on and uh, it was just so much and uh, wanted to be there with his kids. So he started his uh, own practice in a small town in Zanesville, Ohio, and uh, just three or four indoor tennis courts and some outdoor tennis courts and uh you know, he kind of started when he uh, got a country club membership, drumming up some business, what have you. He started, uh, you know, he, 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 he hit some tennis balls and kind of liked it uh, more than golf. So uh, he took me out there and, uh, you know, everybody I meet uh, that from, from, from those days, you know, they just tell stories of how I'd be five, six years old on a tennis court for six hours a day in the summer and... Uh, you know, I've had some good coaches along the way. Some guys, obviously, you know, they were good coaches because they got me to the level of, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old when I was 
you know, one in the world for my age and things like that. They got me to, uh, to, to where I, where I needed to be. But, uh, you know, sometimes that's the kiss of death. Uh, you know, your game style is very, very important. And, you know, at that age, I still, I roll through my parents' house and there's some tennis balls with, you know, 6,500 on them or 4,030. And, you know, I had a coach, Bob McCutcheon, who's in Florida now, and, uh, he would take one ball to the, to the lesson and for an hour, I wouldn't make a mistake. Wow. We hit one ball for an hour at six years old, seven years old. And, you know, at that time when the, when the rackets were a size 60 and things like that, and there was very little power, you know, whoever was gritty and determined and could put the ball in the court, and I certainly could do that. And it led to some uh, serious success and some cool things, like 12 and under world championships, uh, going to Monte Carlo, and it was so funny. I beat Francisco Montana in the 12th Nationals, and my mom came up to me afterwards, and she was so excited, and she was like, we're going to Monte Carlo, we're going to Monte Carlo, and I was like, I don't want to go to Wisconsin. <laughs> she was like, you dummy. <laughs> Wisconsin, I don't know why I thought Monte Carlo was in Wisconsin, but, uh, you know, so, you know, it went off and played the World Championships at 12 years old in Monte Carlo and lost one game. Wow. One game. It was a quarterfinal draw in the finals. I beat Andre Cherkasov, who yep. ended up probably top 20 in the world. I yep. beat him 0-1. He was the only guy to get a game. And uh, Nudo Marcus, who was coaching uh, uh, Del Potro, uh, Nudo Marcus, who was probably top 50 in the world, beat him 0-0 in the, uh, in the semifinals. So. Wow. You know, it was kind of weird because in the 12s, you know, it was there was David Cass, there was Jim Currier, there was Francisco Montana. You know, Sampras was a year younger, so he didn't start playing up until, uh, you know, probably in the 14s. But uh, Michael Chang was there, and, uh, you know, so I would be going through some serious wars in, the, in America, you know, to get through a Jim Currier or a Francisco Montana, who was great, and, you know, Andre Agassi, who I beat in the 12s hardcourt finals in uh, San Diego, uh, you know, and always in, in, in a battle, you know, you'd get to the quarterfinals of the Nationals, you'd be in a battle, and then all of a sudden they sent us to Monte Carlo for the World Championships, and it was supposed to be you know, the world championships, and I was like, these guys are terrible. I kept waiting for Agassi or Montana to come out of the locker Right, right, right. going to make me earn it. Yeah, you grew up with... It ended up... Go ahead. Well, you know, it was interesting, because that was in the 12 and unders. In the 14 and unders, it was Al Parker, and Al Parker was, like, one of probably the greatest junior tennis player in the history of the game. I mean, there's probably guys like Ben Testerman who did a little coaching... Scott Davis, who was unbelievable uh, pro, unbelievable junior. There's been a lot of guys, but, you know, Al Parker was probably the best of the best in junior. So he was a year older than me, and he went to represent America in the 14s in Monte Carlo. And I watched a guy named Kenneth Carlson just put a whipping on Al Parker, and I was just stunned. He's from Sweden, right? Kenneth Carlson was from Sweden, right? Yeah, Kenneth Carlson was from Sweden, yeah. and uh, he ended up playing, I, th- I think he was with Peter Korda, but also Steffi Graf lost to Kijimuta from, uh, in the 14s. Uh, she lost, Sabatini was there, Steffi Graf was there, Steffi Graf lost to Akika Kijimuta, a Japanese girl. Her dad wasn't too happy about that, and... Uh, in the 12s, you know, the Americans were uh, Susan Sloan and Mary Jo Fernandez. And, uh, 
you know, I think Sabatini won the 12 and unders, if wow. I'm if I'm not mistaken, but let me ask you: When did you go down to? Uh, let me ask you: When did you go down to Nick's uh, to Balateri's place? I went down to Balateri's at uh, at, for, at ninth grade. And how long were you there? At ninth grade, I was there the ninth grade, probably through February. I, I stayed probably six months. Oh, you weren't there that long. Okay, okay. I didn't know how no, long you were there. No, but I lived. I lived with Agassi, and I lived with a guy named Dan Naherney, John Boydham, who was a great player. Chris Gardner, who actually coached with me for a while, and now is the head coach at Navy. Uh, there was eight of us in a two-bedroom, uh, <laughs> two-bedroom uh, dorm, and I and I tell people all the time. Dan Naherney was a senior, and I think he was the best player in America. He actually tore his knee. Uh, he tore his knee. I think UCLA versus Georgia in a big match at the NCAA championships, and you know he was a can't miss guy that was going to make it in some pro tennis and make some money and he was a, a, a senior in high school and Agassi and I were freshmen and he used to play a game does the light really go off in the refrigerator and he'd take everything out of the refrigerator the shelves and he'd stick Agassi and I in there and he'd sit by the door asking if does the light is the light off <laughs> so uh, you know what um was it always a plan for you to be down there for a short time or was that shorter than no, you wanted you know, or? I just made up for, for, for that that way of living I, you know my game wasn't you know growing uh, you know just to be honest I think Nick Boletari was darn smart and I think he got the cream of the crop there and, and the cream rises to the top and there was just no doubt three four five months after I after I arrived that uh, Andre Agassi was was the next great American Wow, I mean, and you grew up with the greatest generation of players, man. You really did. The competition must have been absolutely insane. Jimmy Arias, Jimmy Arias and Aaron Crickstein were, were probably top ten in the world at that time in 84, 85, or Crickstein at least was on, on his way to, to being there, and he was there. And, and Nick Bolletari was smart enough. I mean, Andre Agassi was getting as much one-on-one time with Nick Bolletari as as Arius was or Crickstein was. Got it. You know, so Nick 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 actually saw it and then, you know, I think uh, from there, you know, he, he inspired the guys that were mature enough to uh, know how close they were and the ones that weren't mature enough, like like a guy named me, you know, kind of uh, you know, it's 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 tough to be mature at fourteen, fifteen years old, but you know what Jim Courier certainly was at that age. Got Michael it. Michael Chang certainly was at that age. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you had, obviously, <laughs> we've, we've said it a couple times now, a successful junior career. I know you're from the Ohio area. You wound up playing at Ohio State. You had your choice of schools, I'm sure, uh, that were looking to hopefully uh, add you to their rosters. Was was Ohio State pretty much a uh, conclusion, uh, easy, easy conclusion that you were going to attend there? recruited me hard when he was the assistant coach at UCLA with Glenn Bassett was there at that time and uh, Manny Diaz at Georgia, Dan McGill had been recruiting me uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if it was legal now that I'm in the coaching thing but he'd been kind of going after me, you know, 13 or 14 years old Dan McGill, so uh, you know, I, I, I had some good opportunities, I, I visited Tennessee as well, coached the Palmer and uh, but 
but I, you know, for me, it was just a. It, it been a. I like to be at home, and I'd be at a tennis academy for six months, and then come back and go to high school for a semester, or go to high school for nine weeks at home, and you know, and on and off, on and off. I went to tennis academies my freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year, but I always just spent a semester, nine weeks in in Zanesville uh, at uh, Zanesville High School. So you know, I kind of. You know, it wasn't, you know, being nine, ten months down in a tennis factory, it just, it, it, it wasn't for me. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it, 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 was, it was tough. It wasn't easy at all. I understand. I mean, you had a very successful career at Ohio State, two-time All-American, uh, held the number one single spot for three years. You then played on the Pro Tour. And you played, in, I, when I saw this, this was crazy, you played in over 40 foreign tournaments um you got as high as 234 in the world had some really good wins including defeating tim henman um talk a little bit about your you know thoughts on the pro tour likes dislikes and then if how you got into coaching yeah i was pretty average uh, you know i probably didn't give it enough time but you know played with some uh, you know played against Quirton, played against henman you know in morocco i found sargis sargisian who ended up top 50 in the world and I think he won three college tournaments. Uh, he actually had, when I, I, I flew to Morocco to play a satellite thinking that I was going to uh, sneak over to Africa, get some cheap points, and I show up and it's uh, Hichimarazi, uh, Yunus El Nawi, Kareem Alami, Tim Henman, wow. Sargis Sargisian. <laughs> and Sargis and I started playing doubles, won three of the four he didn't speak any English and so after that month we became friends he had nothing you know Russia wasn't sponsoring him because he was from Armenia and stuff so he came to I was living in uh, at a place at Saddlebrook because that was a tennis academy that I'd been uh, my junior and senior year in high school so when I got done playing I moved back down there and I had a place at Saddlebrook and he came and you know stayed with me uh, for, for a little while uh, because segment one Back in the day, the USTA segment one was all through Florida. So okay. He came and, um, you know, and he didn't have enough money to play, but he was unbelievable. And uh, he was supposed to go to Ohio State. Well, I kept winning in the Masters of segment one, and my buddy Dave Lomicky ended up driving him from Florida when the circuit was over for both of them, driving him, him to Florida, talked talk him into going to Arizona State. Sargisian won all three nationals in the same year wow. in college. Turned pro, and Agassi had a little Armenian in him. Agassi picked up Sargisian as a as a hitting partner. Practice partner. Yeah. Yes, and Sargisian ended up having an unbelievable career. Yeah, he did. That's great. Unbelievable That's... pro career. But uh, like I said, it it was. Uh, Guy showed up in Casablanca. I lay my eyes on him. He's like, doubles? He's like, he's asking, sure. You know, all he could say in English was doubles. <laughs> so I said, yeah, guess we'll play some doubles. And uh, guy had like two different rackets. Huh. You know, had nothing. Had nothing. And I think he'd won Junior Wimbledon doubles with Kafelnikov, but because he was Armenian, he, there was no sponsor money for him. That's incredible. That's but, incredible. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, but on that little 25,000, people don't realize how tough it was. A $25,000 satellite, which means $6,000 in each tournament. Yeah. 
they yeah. were having quarterfinal matchups of Hichim Arazi, who got the top 30 in the world, versus Tim Henman. Yeah. Sargis Sargisian against Eunice El Nawi. <laughs> I mean, they were playing for $92. <laughs> you know? Incredible. So Incredible. Like, yeah. So you get. I got off on a tangent, so you tell me what you need from me next, because I'm a freak. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's all good. So, so you get into coaching, and I mean, my gosh, well, you know, from from the accolades that you've got so far with your uh, coaching career at Ohio State, I'm just going to name a few. This can go on for pages. But 2009 ITA National Coach of the Year, 14-time Big Ten Coach of the Year, eight-time eight-time ITA Midwest Region Coach of the Year. Uh, you're the Ohio State and Big Ten all-time winningest men's tennis coach. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. How did you get into coaching? Is it something that you thought you, you, you wanted to do? Did you have any idea you'd be good at it? I didn't know if I'd be good at it, but I definitely wanted to do it. So, you know, I definitely, you know, had a relationship with uh, my coach. And at the time, what people don't understand is there were no paid assistant jobs. So, you know, I became like, the first guy to be paid to be an assistant coach at Ohio State, it was $18,000 a year. And back in that time, there weren't any guys that were going off and playing the circuit for three years and losing $50,000 or, or breaking even if they got lucky during the three years on the pro circuit. You know, nobody could go take a college job afterwards because, you know, there were grad positions or it was an $18,000 a year job. So it was like everybody that got their brains beat in on the pro circuit like me would either go off and teach or go use their degree or go get in a family business. But nobody was getting into college coaching because, they, you know, they were 25, 26, 27 years old. And how, how can you justify after losing money for three years playing pro tennis to go make $18,000 a year to be an assistant. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it was, uh, you know, it was uh, a lot of odd jobs and, uh, you know, lessons on the side and, you know, working at a family business and things like that, which afforded me the opportunity to be able to, uh, you know, do that for two and a half years. But, you know, I fell in love with it. I fell in love. I mean, the, the nine months to ten months I was out of the tennis game before I started coaching, you know, I, I, I was really in need for, I didn't understand, you know, how competitive I was and that need to, to, to compete day in and day out. And, you know, I started to realize that, uh, you know, I was, I was missing something during those ten months. It was a great ten months, but, uh, you know, it was a wild 10 months at the time that I was out of tennis to when I got back into coaching. But, uh, no, and you're you know, lucky. I, I needed it. Yeah, and I tell everyone, you're lucky. When you find your uh, passion as your vocation, don't ever take that for granted. You're, you're very lucky. Yeah. The next, the, next so, thing, the, the next thing I want to talk about is the tennis you look at on the Pro Tour. It's obviously such an individualized sport. But all these team competitions are starting to get so much more popular. You know, Davis Cup has always been popular. But then the Labor Cup. And you see even the popularity on World Team Tennis and what they're doing. And they're adding teams. Um, college, obviously, you're playing for more than just yourself. And what's your, what's your kind of take? Why, why, do you think more team competition, competitions will keep continuing on the professional tours? Because everybody loves it. I don't know about that, but what I will tell you as a college coach, you have to be, you, you get out there early and, you know, and it's junior tennis and some kids have this and some kids do that, but, you know, you'll see some kids lose a t set 7-5 and, you know, throw in the towel a little bit to, you know, in the 
second set and lose all the momentum. And, you know, by the time they're 17 or 18 years old and you're watching them, you know, just just losing your focus for three games and acting like a baby and, you know, kind of giving up for, for, for a quick 10 minutes. And next thing you know, the match is over. You might be able to come back from that at 12 and up when, you know, people are just pushing the ball on the court and things. But, you know, it, it's so funny because, you know, you might cross a guy off the list. I mean, there's been two or three guys that I said, man, that guy walked away from a couple matches in the juniors, and he walked away, and, and just, I just don't want to deal with a guy who might throw in the towel, you know, because one thing went bad, and next thing you know, he's he's playing for that school logo on his chest, and, and he's not giving up an inch. Yep. You're like, dang, I, I, I missed out. I missed out. Uh, you know, that team competition, you know, especially for uh, tennis players, some might not have grown up playing Little League baseball or Penny League football or, you know, in the basketball league and things like that. But they get on a team and they all of a sudden realize, you know, this, there's something bigger than me. And, uh, you know, college tennis is in, is in a pretty darn good, pretty darn good spot right now with, uh, you know, a six game set, no ad scoring and doubles and yep. eight game. You know, in two out of three sets. I'll tell you, the, the margins are thin. I think back to college tennis. And, you know, nowadays, you know, you can be four in the country and show up somewhere that's 24 in the country and go on the road and play 24 in the country and get waxed. And, and, and you know, the people say, come back and they'll say, what happened, what happened, what happened? But, you know, nobody says what happened when, you know, the four team in basketball goes on the road and gets beat by the 24 team in the country. Right. I mean, the, the, the parody now. Yes, absolutely agree. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, I had Jeff Salzenstein on a couple months ago, and he has this theory, and we talk, you know, there's always so much talk, obviously, about the big three, and how, uh, you know, Novak and Rafa and Fed have, you know, kept their distance so far ahead of number four, five, six, seven, um, and the rest of the field. And Jeff has a theory. He said, the big three, they came up as kids without having a, uh, without having the smartphone as kids. And now every generation since then grew up with the smartphone. And he thinks that those big three, the generation that didn't come up um, raised with the smartphone, can keep their focus a little bit more. That's just a theory. He hasn't, it hasn't been proven or anything, but you have any take on that? Jeff Salzenstein. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jeff's a great player and, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that you know, when you look at these tournaments and Super 9 tournaments and you look in the summertime in America and you go to watch these guys, I mean, you get a lot more chances to play in front of 22,000 people in a nighttime environment and, and never having to face too many 109-degree days out there playing three out of five sets because the people that are paying the money, the sponsors, are, are, are coming after 5 p.m. and they want to see see Federer and they want to see Djokovic and they want to see Nadal and I don't think they get caught I don't think they get caught in arm's way out there in Cincinnati in a 107 degree day three days in a row playing at 1 p.m. <laughs> you know I think I think those guys get uh, you know they deserve it too and then I think those guys know how to play in front of all the television cameras and 22,000 people in the stands and I think even though you're nine in the world you're not used to you're not used to playing under the lights at night. You're not used to playing in front of 22,000 people. You're not used to playing for $150,000 on one match. Right. I think what Jeff said probably has something to do with it as well, but I think if you'd sprinkle in the fact that 
you know, a lot of these guys. I, that's why I think it's a great play by Curios, the way he acts and stuff. I mean, that guy plays more night matches yes. than, than anybody outside the top, those top three that you talked about. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if Curios is in shape to play in 115-degree weather on the courts in D.C. or Cincinnati or at the U.S. Open in the in the daytime like, you know, some of like, like Schwartzman is. Right. You know, I don't... You know, and but I think that those guys, you know, they get the body gets safe a little bit. They get to play in some cooler conditions. Then all of a sudden, they get to play on stadium courts. And these guys that they play never get a chance to play on a stadium and court until they're playing them. Right. You know, it's not like they're playing in, on a court sixteen and there's seven hundred forty people watching. Yeah. You no. Know, these guys are playing on court court fourteen for the first three rounds of the of the U.S. Open at one o'clock in the afternoon, just getting just buried by the sun and next thing you know they've lost a lot of energy and they find themselves in the round of 16 now they're on Arthur Ashe trying to play better yeah yeah no all true all true so um look I know this is a very odd time where everything has stopped and hopefully we're going to be you know get through this uh, get through this all together sooner rather than later but before I let you go you know I had Drew Eberly on the uh on the pod and uh, give me give me something on Drew. Right? Drew's going to listen to this, so you got to give some sort of dig on on Drew. Drew was very very crafty, very very crafty. Great tennis player, bunt that ball around. Uh, great guy. I mean, totally understood college tennis. I tried to get Drew into coaching before appeared in Denver. He, he had a job offer, and uh, he was working for the Cubs at the time. And I always thought Drew Everly could be a fantastic coach. I mean, a, a great guy, very smart, very crafty. But uh, you know what? I, I look back. I mean, I've got nothing. You know, of course, Drew had some fun. I mean, he was a he was a real guy. I mean, he, he had had some good times, and you know, I won't go into those. Times, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just. You know, whatever Drew had with Justin Kronoggi and Brian Konyako and Stephen Monarchy and Ross Wilson and Scott Green, and there was a group of guys, Matt Allaire and the Buchanan. I mean, there was a run that I had for four or five years where, you know, we've absolutely been trying hard, desperately to find that kind of chemistry. And, you know, you try to find that. And, you know, the more I'm into it, the more you're just like, you know, everybody talks about culture, everybody talks about this or that. And, you know, the culture has to be this or that, but, you know, we keep trying to find that. And Drew was a big part of it. Drew was a huge part of, uh, you know, what we had going on in those those years of, uh, you know, you mentioned the Big Ten championships and uh, things like that. But, uh, you know, have nothing but love, nothing but thanks for Drew Everly. Drew Everly uh, gave everything he could and... Uh, you know, he got benched one time, and his mom was ready to choke me, but uh, he was, uh, Drew, Drew Everly was a good guy. Awesome. All right. He's going to enjoy hearing that. Coach, thank you so much. Um, like I said, I know it's a crazy time, but hopefully we get through this uh, sooner rather than later, and appreciate your time. Hey, I appreciate you helping. Thanks a lot for doing what you do for tennis. Thanks, Coach. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. That was Coach Ty Tucker. He's, he's great. He's so fun to have on. I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, he's had so much success at Ohio State. 
I'm sorry for some of the sound there. Um, He was outside and there were some things going on, but hope you enjoyed the conversation. And again, stay tuned for uh, another guest soon. Courtside with Beelins and Tennis on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere you can uh, find your podcast. Thanks. Bye.